0: Stats and science in baseball? You bet your life. We'll talk with Andy Andres, the baseball professor, next on Baseball HQ Radio.
1: Swung on, high fly ball. The left center should do it. There's Foster, and the 1976 World Championship belongs to the Cincinnati Reds. In the ninth inning, the Yankees are out in order as the Reds in this fourth game... In sweeping Billy Martin's New York Yankees, do it decisively. Four in the ninth inning, and a seven to two final score.
2: Learn to play the winner's way, cause Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com. Columnist Patrick Davitt.
0: And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for the week of April the 12th and show number 13 of the 2013 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davich, your host, and in addition to Andy Andres, the baseball professor, we'll have our regular contributors from baseballhq.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our National League analyst is Harold Nichols, our American League analyst is columnist Jock Thompson. In our Minor League Minute, Rob Gordon talks about Seattle catching prospect Mike Zunino. And in his Master Notes, BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler talks about excruciating patience. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. You know, my Tout Wars team was projected for first place, and we're currently dead last. Hey, what do you say? We gotta talk some baseball. I think... Yeah, the Tout War stats provider on Roto.com includes standings projections using a couple of different systems, and by my Baseball HQ stats, I was going to be the number one team. But after the first week with those sensational implosions by my ace pitchers Cole Hamels and David Price, I was sitting dead last. Excruciating patience indeed. And now for the first inning of our show, our League Watch News reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with players from the American League. And leading off, it's the National League report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks
1: a lot, Patrick. Good to be here.
0: At BaseballHQ.com, Nick, uh, Dan Becker's Batting Buyer's Guide column is all about hot ads in the public leagues. And uh, so I thought we'd talk about a few guys, not just batters, who've been uh, widely added in those public leagues like Yahoo and ESPN and so forth. And in all of those lists, no ad has been hotter than Mets catcher John Buck. But do you think he's worth all that fab money?
1: Well, you know, John Buck is off to an incredible start. I mean, the guy is uh, the guy is showing some power and if you look back over his record, uh, he, he's got some years when, uh, the, when the kind of start he's off to uh, would not necessarily be abnormal. He had 20 home runs in 2010, batted 281. Uh, the guy looked really, really good. But the problem we've got right now, of course, is that uh, uh, we have last year when he hit 12 homers and hit 192. So somewhere in between there is probably the real John Buck. And the question is, how much fab do you want to spend on him? And the other thing to remember is that the Mets are sitting with a catcher that they really want to bring up at some point, and that's Travis darneau, so all it's going to take is a little a little uh, lapse of playing time for Buck or, or lapse of performance on Buck and he's no longer the starting catcher in new york so He's not a guy I'd be jumping on unless you can dump him within the next week or so as soon as he, he gets uh, on hot.
0: Uh, yeah, I was thinking exactly the same thing. Here, here's a guy who's going to be on a really short leash because uh, they, they know his track record as well as we do. I was looking at that 2010 season, 20 homers, 66 RBIs, a 281 batting average. It definitely looks like the outlier, doesn't it? I mean, he's more like maybe 10 or 11 home runs, 45 RBIs around 220, 225, something like that.
1: Very definitely i mean that's uh, that's that 's the norm and here 's a guy who 's uh, you know, he's thirty two years old that norm is very firmly established, so yeah I think that uh, that season was the outlier uh, i don 't think we 're going to see it repeated here 's a guy that 's a very free swinger batting eye is zero point two o to start this year, so his batting eye is much worse than it was a year ago
0: yeah that that all those kind of things point to the same conclusion, and that is that he's just having a hot streak to start the year and it'll probably settle back down. I mean, I wouldn't mind getting him for 2 or $3 if I had a, a second catcher that would be even, even worse than, than John Buck is likely to be, but I'm sure not going to empty my Fab account
1: no, very definitely. Not somebody you want to do that with because he may not be around for the whole season and he's certainly going to cool off.
0: And you mentioned Travis Darno. Of course, the Mets have a vested interest in keeping him out of the major leagues until sort of mid to late May because they save a year of his arbitration time and so forth. So uh, I would bet that John Buck, come what may, is probably going to get some at-bats through at least that time. But uh, as you say, he's probably going to fall off and when he does, the Mets certainly have some options. Uh, Dan Becker's Batting Buyers Guide also mentions John J. of st louis and he calls him the kind of fantasy asset that isn't likely to move the needle in any one category but he'll help you in kind of all of
1: them yeah you know john jay is a guy that's worth looking at i mean you look at last year with john jay He hit 305 uh got uh 19 stolen bases four homers 40 rbis uh, you know a, a guy that uh consistently over the last three seasons has been around 300 and actually started off uh, he's got two homers so far which which kind of uh, is half what he hit a year ago and that's what people are looking at but his batting average so far is not that good. But uh, here's a guy that we certainly expect to be at, at least 270, uh, maybe closer to 280 or 290 based on his track record. Uh, he's not going to steal 40 bases, but he might steal in a regular job, might get uh, 20 steals if he's uh, playing every day as he is right now. So, yeah, not a guy, to, bad guy to pick up. As you say, he's not going to explode any category, uh, but could kind of help across the board and may not hurt you.
0: Yeah, I looked at those uh, stats too. In 432 at bats last year, he had those 19 stolen bases. The year before, he had 455 at bats, so that's roughly similar. He only had six stolen bases, but he had 10 home runs, so he's he's one of those kind of guys. Is uh, sort of uh, I'm. Imagining is a, a situational base dealer can can swing for power if he th- feels the need or sees his pitch. And in the meantime, yeah, you, you could do worse than getting a 300 hitter and 400 and some at bats. That's uh, 120 hits. And even though it, it's a ratio category, you need hits.
1: Yeah, very definitely. I mean, here's a guy, you know, he's, he's probably a good fourth outfielder, is what my guess would be in uh, in most kind of uh, NL leagues. But, uh, you know, he's, he's not a bad guy to have on a bench. And uh, certainly if you're. If you're desperate at the number 4 or number 3 outfield spot, he'll he'll be a decent fill-in.
0: And could easily be available in a lot of leagues, especially if they're shallow. Uh, Staying in St. Louis but moving on to the pitcher's mound, looks like Jason Mott is out for at least three weeks is what they're saying and possibly might need surgery that would end him for the year. Uh, They were talking about reconstructive elbow surgery, and that's no short-run solution. Uh, So we have a bit of a closer vacuum in St. Louis uh, based on what we thought going into the year. Into the Vacuum has ridden Mitchell Boggs, and I'm wondering, do we climb aboard this particular horse?
1: Well, you know, it depends on how long you want to climb aboard this particular horse. Uh, Mitchell Boggs may be fine for a couple of weeks. He's, uh, uh, if you look at his numbers over the past few seasons, he's showed continuous improvement. Uh, I mean, very steady, uh, steadily getting better from a uh, a 4.19 ERA in 2009 to 2.21 a year ago. Uh, BPV is going up from 21 to ninety. So the kind of growth that you like to see in a pitcher, the guy's 29 years old, so he's going through growth years, all of those things look, look very, very, very good. But uh, the question is how long a leash is he going to have? And and my guess is not very long. Uh, he's had one blow-up already, uh, a very, very bad blow-up. Uh, so, you know, it's it's entirely possible, and he's got Trevor Rosenthal behind him, and I think the, the uh, real thinking uh, uh, in St. Louis is probably that Trevor Rosenthal could be the closer of the future. So, they're not going to put Trevor Rosenthal in that role right away, but uh, Mitchell Boggs is certainly on a short leash. And then you've got also got Edward Musica, who's not a bad pitcher in himself, and if neither of those guys can hack it, uh, they've got plenty of backup. So uh, Mitchell Boggs, uh, yeah, for a couple of weeks, may be able to get a few saves, but not a guy I would count on as being the closer for the entire year.
0: Yeah, this is one of those situations, Nick, that makes me think that maybe of – as people look at Mitchell Boggs and they think, I want the guy next in line, they're, gonna, they're going to gravitate towards Rosenthal. But I, I've read and I understand that they think Rosenthal might have a future in the organization as a starting pitcher, and I know that in the short run they'll, ha- they'll do what they think they have to do to make sure they're not losing games in the ninth inning. But then I look at they have uh, Fernando Salas in there as well. He was the closer a couple of years ago. So it's not like the uh, Cardinals lack for options beyond these two guys.
1: Yeah, very definitely, and Salas has gotten off to kind of a rough start for the year, too, but you're right, he was a closer a few years ago, he's got a got a, uh, a bunch of saves on his resume, uh, and a guy who could do very well in the role, he's, he's proven that he can do that.
0: And another closer situation, of course, in Milwaukee, John Axford lost the job, and uh, i got to tell you, a week ago, uh, one of my competitors in Telt Wars offered me a closer, because it's going to be a, a big bidding war on Jim Henderson, well, I had no intention of bidding on Jim Henderson, and I bet ne- neither would you, and we're going to find out in a second, even after he got the closer role. Do you think I was wrong to say I'm not interested in Jim Henderson?
1: No, I don't think you were wrong at all to say you weren't interested in Jim Henderson for, for a couple of reasons. Uh, Jim Henderson had a good year last year. I mean, Jim Henderson had a 3.52 ERA, a 155 BPV, uh, 13 strikeouts per nine innings. I mean, come on. That was that was just incredible. So So he had a good year. But he also uh, struggled in safe situations. He only was able to convert half of them. And then you look back at Jim Henderson's minor league record and, and the control ratio that he posted last year in the majors, 3.8 walks per nine innings, matched his best in the minor leagues ever. So, you know, what do you think is going to happen? This is a guy who's had a, a, uh, a record of generally walking uh, five guys or more per nine innings in the minor leagues. At 30 years old, he's likely to revert right back to that. I mean, if, over the past five seasons, minor league walk rates, 5.8, then 3.8, 5.2, 4.6, 4.1. Uh, all reasons to, uh, to hesitate with Jim Henderson. And the other thing to think about is I think they really want Axford back closing. Uh, he's having a rough patch right now. He was, and he's done this before. He was, uh, had a rough patch at the end of spring training. Right now he's just playing awful. Uh, but he's likely to get straightened out just as he did last year and could easily wind up back in the role, uh, without, without a big problem once he's, uh, whatever mechanical issue he's dealing with. Uh, he's taken care of.
0: Well, Tom Kephart at BaseballHQ.com doing news analysis on this situation did point out that John Axford has three straight years where his base performance value is over 100, and over 100 is elite country. I mean, it's not Dennis Eckersley or uh, Mariano Rivera, but it's certainly very, very good. Uh, the the base performance value combines strikeout rate, walk rate, and uh, all those other pitcher skills. So Nick, do you think maybe the play here might be while everybody's dumping Axford to go after Henderson, maybe now the the play is to grab Axford if you have the chance.
1: I think that would be the, the smart play at this point. Uh, the uh, last year's history says that that's, uh, that's the smart play.
0: Okay, Nick, thanks very much for helping us out this week. We'll catch up with you again in a week's time. All right, thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols writes the National League Central Division Outlook for BaseballHQ.com and is our reporter on the National League Beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's move over to the American League. And BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show.
3: Hi, PD. How you doing this week?
0: Well, I've been better. We've got water pouring through the ceiling of my house, so we're going to be dealing with insurance for a while. So it's a pleasure to talk about fantasy baseball for a while. And let's start in your backyard, the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, some bad news, two pieces of bad news, actually. Let's start with probably the worst of the two. Uh, Jared Weaver, who's been a real uh, innings-eating ace for the team is now going on the dl and this could be trouble
3: weaver's injury is going to hurt the angels already had pitching problems both in their rotation and uh and bullpen Uh, they they don't have a lot behind weaver Uh, i will give you a different take on weaver though i've always felt that that the season lasted about four to six weeks too long for weaver when he comes back which should be early june because this wasn't his pitching uh Uh, elbow that was broken Um, i think he might be pretty effective for these last four months he's the he's the type of guy who tends to wear down as the season goes on and his velocity tends to go down so at least from that angle um he he's going to be effective i think when he returns
0: and the question is i guess it's garrett richards number one to take his spot
3: uh, lean toward Garrett Richards. Garrett Richards is an interesting guy. He, he throws in the mid-90s. He's put up 50% ground ball rates in the minors. He has all kinds of talent. His biggest issue has been consistency uh, and an off-speed pitch. Um, I've, I've seen a little more of, uh, of both this spring. I've seen his off-speed pitch, and, and uh, when he throws it and it works, it's good. But he still tends to go a couple of hitters or innings and then begins to elevate pitches. And I think one of the issues the Angels have here is that he might be better out of the pen. Now, so far, he's been so good, and, and he could break through as a starting pitching pitcher, but uh, he's the guy the Angels are going to go to. They're not exactly brimming with depth.
0: And losing Weaver also means they're going to not get as deep into games, at least his turn in the rotation. That's going to tax a bullpen that's already under pressure.
3: The Angel pen wasn't real good this spring. The last two nights, the A's have exploited it. Uh, Kevin Jepsen gave up four runs on uh, Tuesday night, and last night it was Mark Lowe. Garrett Richards was the kind of guy who's coming in for, for an inning or two, and sometimes even longer, and, and could shut the door. And uh, this is going to have some ramifications.
0: Also with the Angels, uh, Eric Ibar has a badly bruised heel, may or may not go on the the, uh, disabled list. What's the news that you hear lately about Eric Ibar and also what's going to happen if he's out?
3: Yeah, we were at that game. He hit first base and then was wandering around the bag for the next three pitches until they took him out. Uh, it's obviously a badly bruised heel. I think what the Angels are trying to do is to see if he can avoid the DL. Hopefully he'll only be out for like five, six games. If it goes longer than that, they'll probably put him on the DL. It all depends on his progress. Uh, In his absence, there's going to be a left-right platoon of uh, Andrew Romine and Brendan Harris. I don't think either of these guys have shown much in the way of offensive skills. They're not worth picking up from a fantasy perspective. Uh, They really don't have much to offer you.
0: In Oakland, we talked earlier in the year, Jock, about their second base situation, which was uh, to be charitable, not exactly solid. And now it probably has got worse. Scott Sizemore has retorn his ACL, which means he's going to miss the entire rest of the season, which means Oakland's back to mixing and matching and trying to find somebody who's a major league player at that position.
3: It's kind of interesting. Uh, we talked about Oakland's depth and, uh, and thank goodness for their depth. Uh, but second base is the biggest mess on that team. They um, they're, they're going to have all kinds of different lineups going forward. You've got Adam, Adam Rosales, who will uh, soon return from, from an oblique strain. He's scheduled to go out on a rehab Um Sogard will, t- will take over in the meantime, and he hit really well this spring. But like Rosales, he's only a utility type who, who really hasn't played uh, a full season ever. Um, clearly, Oakland wants uh, Jamal Weeks to regroup a little bit and prove himself for a month or so in the minors before they give him another shot. And then you got Grant Green longer term. So I- I've been saying it all year. It- there's a real question as to whether the second the, the-, the primary second baseman in Oakland is going to have more than 200 at-bats this year.
0: Any chance you think that they use their outfield depth to try to acquire a middle infielder who's a a little better able to handle a major league load?
3: Yeah, that's a very good call. I could definitely see them doing that over the next month or two. Um, They do have uh, excess depth in the outfield, and they're a contender. I mean, the A's are a good team. Um, They're going to need a good second baseman to put them in the postseason.
0: I was listening to the Seattle-Houston game the other night, uh, the very first play of the game. Michael Saunders, whom I have on my Tout Wars uh, mixed team, made a terrific defensive play in the outfield, jumped up, made a catch, but uh, banged into the wall, fell onto the warning track, now has a sprained shoulder. He's not on the DL yet, but it looks like he's going to miss some significant amount of time. Uh, How does that affect the playing time situation in Seattle?
3: Yeah, that looks like a wait-and-see, similar to Eric Ibar's. Um, The the two obvious winners, at least from the get-go on this, are Raul uh, Raul Abinez and uh, um, Jason Bay. They're going to see upticks in their playing time. Uh, Ibanez will get the at-bats versus uh, righties, and Bay will get them versus lefties. Um, Ibanez actually showed good power in Yankee Stadium last year with that short porch, and who knows, with uh, with Safeco's dimension shrinking, um, he could provide some power there as well. Um, Bay hasn't shown much of anything over the past three years, thanks to concussion problems and other injuries. Um, He has some latent power still, and and in Safeco, who knows? I mean, uh, probably either of these guys are worth a flyer in deep leagues if you're looking for offense.
0: Raul Abanez is one of those guys, Jock, that everybody looks at him and they kind of scoff and they say, oh, good old Raul, you know, he's kind of a dud in the outfield and uh, is not that terrific of a player. But I was looking at his record the other day, and, you know, from 2001 to last year, he had an OPS plus under 100, that is worse than league average, just once. Every other year in that period, he was way either over or way over the 100 level of OPS+, which means he's been a very productive player for a very long time. Now, I know he's 117 years old, which might factor into making your personnel decisions, but I think you could do worse. I think you could do worse with Jason Bay, frankly.
3: No, I agree. In fact, um, uh, uh, Ibanez, um, when he puts the ball in the air, he's been fortunate enough to be in some pretty good parks recently in Philadelphia and New York uh, that have really helped his home run totals. I know uh, the large majority of his home runs last year were in Yankee Stadium against right-handed pitchers. And uh, with Safeco's fences coming in again, he could he could have another, uh, another resurgence here.
0: It sure wouldn't surprise me, Jock, because uh, in that Seattle-Houston series, there were a lot of home runs hit, and neither one of these teams is going to make anybody forget Murderer's Row, the 27 Yankees, or anything. So I think that park might be playing very favorably for power hitters.
3: Yeah, I think the call we've been making here at Baseball HQ, Ron Chandler and pretty much everybody that Safeco Field is going to begin to play like the cell is almost looking prophetic in the early going.
0: We have a bunch of columns at Baseball HQ this week that look at pitching situations, facts and flukes, and also buyer's guides. Let's start with Dave Adler, who talked on Wednesday in the Fact and Flukes column about Brett Myers, who a lot of people looked at in Cleveland this year and said, hmm, maybe not, maybe not a bad pick. Turns out, maybe a bad pick.
3: (laughs) Well, after 10 innings, he, he was anyway, if he's on your active roster, because his first two starts... Um, he's got a 12.19 ERA, and there's a lot of owners running away from Brett Myers. Um, on the and and his his DOM has been tra- trending in the wrong direction in the, over the past three years. But looking at the at the overall picture here, his control and command and ground ball rate are all doing really well trend-wise, and it, and it suggests that Myers really still knows how to pitch. Progressive Field is a pretty good park for this. Um, Myers pitched really well in relief at the cell for about 35 innings in 2012. You know, he avoided the, the home run ball, and he put up a 312 ERA. I think he's due for some good work. I, I don't think he's going to be terrific, but... If you can if you can get a, a dissatisfied owner to dump him, I think you're going to get a guy with a sub-4 ERA, perhaps, for the rest of the season.
0: I was looking at the ads and drops in the Yahoo Public Leagues and the ESPN Public Leagues, and Brett Myers is on the list of, of most dropped players, so it may be an opportunity to scoop him up on the cheap I don't know about activating him right away. You might want to play mix and match and sit him against the tougher teams. But part of the 12-19 ERA in his last two appearances, one of them came when Brett Myers was called in as kind of a long man, a day ahead of his scheduled start, to take over for somebody who had pitched really poorly and had, been, had come out of the game in the second inning or something. So maybe uh, we need to give Brett Myers a bit of the benefit of the doubt to be thrown into a situation when you're, you're on, a, on a schedule to pitch on a Thursday and they say, guess what, go out there and start pitching now on Wednesday. You know, it's not the easiest thing in the world to do.
3: Sure, and benching him in April isn't a bad call, or at least until he turns it around. He can can go for another couple weeks, but uh, overall, these things tend to even out, and Myers isn't that bad a pitcher.
0: Doug Dennis, our excellent bullpen buyer's guide columnist, wrote about Joel Hanrahan in Boston, whom they signed to be the closer after some uncertainty the last couple of years in that role. He had a pretty good first week, but then uh, really got crushed by the Orioles Wednesday night, a devastating loss for Boston and a devastating blown save for Hanrahan. This guy's got flyball problems. He's got control problems. Uh, how long is he for the role? Do you think? And then who's next?
3: Yeah, that's a really interesting call. And you and you, and you described uh, Hanrahan perfectly. Um, and the problem for him is that Boston's bullpen is really, really good. I mean, they've got Andrew Bailey, who was a closer who showed good skills while he was healthy in Oakland, and uh, Boston acquired him last year. He got injured again. But um, Bailey's pitching well. You've got uh, Uihara and you've got Tazawa. All of these guys could potentially close. So Hanrahan's not going to get a lot of rope here. Boston is going to depend on his on their pitching. I would not be surprised to see Bailey get a shot really soon. Um, Boston will t- will try to showcase him if they're not competing, um, and t- uh, probably try to trade him sometime in Jul- in uh, in July or or June. And then I wouldn't be be surprised to see uh, Junichi T- Tazawa get a shot. This guy has probably better skills than any of the names I've mentioned, and this is a guy to me who's the most interesting in the long term.
0: Yeah, Tazawa does have really, really top skills. I, I looked at his base performance value at BaseballHQ.com it's a combination of, of his strikeout rate, walk rate, home run rate and so on and uh, he, he was head and shoulders above all the other competitors in that bullpen. Tazawa might be a good guy to grab. I have him on a couple of teams that's for sure and uh, I I think for now it seems to me that the order would be Bailey first until he gets hurt Um, Uehara next because he's an older veteran, and then Tezawa last. But I think you're right. I think is the guy in the long term. In our minor league call-ups column, which runs weekly, uh, actually daily in in season, Chris Maloney profiled Nick Tepish. He's a rookie who seems to have inherited the Rangers' number five rotation spot, at least for now.
3: Yeah, uh, Tepish is an interesting guy because of his ground ball rates and command. Now, he's not an ace. He's really a number four, number five guy. And remember, he beat Tampa Bay his first time out, which is why he's getting picked up in some of these leagues. And Tampa Bay's offense is really scuffling out of the gate. But essentially, Tepish is is going to be battling Justin Grimm, who is in for Matt Harrison, who just got put on the DL with with bat problems by Texas. Uh, Tepish and Grimm are going to be fighting for the the number five spot uh, uh, over these next four to six weeks, at least until Colby Lewis gets back. And I think whoever pitches well is going to stay. And I'll give you another take. I personally think that, that Texas, once they get Lewis back and hopefully they get healthy, um, he's going to be one of those guys they wouldn't mind dealing for the piece that takes them deep into the postseason. So this is the kind of opportunity that's really an audition for other teams looking for, looking for pitching in, at midyear as much as it is early season help for Texas.
0: Speaking of closers, uh, Bob Berger's American League Central Division outlook touched on Greg Holland, who had a pretty rough week, and Kelvin Herrera might be threatening his job. Herrera looked pretty good the other night.
3: Bottom line is Herrera is is, is a better pitcher than Greg Holland. Uh, uh, Greg Holland had a had a rough week, as you mentioned, um, and then the other night against the Twins, he he locked down the save, uh, uh, but uh, he he walked two hitters and threw twenty seven pitches. So last night, or I'm sorry, Wednesday night, um, it it, it wasn't surprising that Herrera was on to to get the save. But this is a guy who throws mid-high nineties gas. Uh, He doesn't have the control problems that Derek Holland does. With Kansas City in win-win now mode, I would not be surprised if Herrera takes this job from Holland eventually.
0: I wouldn't be either, Jock. Thanks very much for talking with us. We'll catch up with you again in a week's time.
3: Okay, PD. Thanks a lot.
0: Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com, covers the three major league teams in Southern California, writes the Keeper League column, is just a very busy guy, and our American League beat reporter here at Baseball HQ Radio. Our feature interview with Andy Andres of BaseballHQ.com and Tufts University is next. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. This is Ron Chandler. As
4: a listener to this Baseball HQ Radio podcast, you enjoy getting the winner's edge from BaseballHQ.com's information and insight. But the podcast is just the surface. Now I invite you to dive into BaseballHQ.com and to get the complete range of upgraded news, analysis, strategy, and tools for fantasy success. With your subscription, you'll get the latest on probable pitchers, daily matchups, and depth charts. The latest gaming strategies, extensive minor league scouting, up-to-the-minute player skills analysis, online tools you can tailor to your league, and our unsurpassed fantasy baseball research. Joining the BaseballHQ.com community also includes our subscriber forums, sharing the wisdom of thousands of other serious fantasy players and without the name-calling. Plus, we've upgraded our news feed to get you the information you need faster than ever before. Find out about our new flexible subscription plans with a draft prep package or year-long access. Come dive into BaseballHQ.com today.
0: And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Pleasure now to be joined by Andy Andres, a past guest on the show, a veteran writer and analyst at BaseballHQ.com, and a university professor who teaches baseball analysis and sabermetrics at Tufts University in Boston. He also teaches biology and physics at Boston University. And we're going to talk about a, a role he has at MIT teaching baseball as a vehicle for science. It's very interesting stuff. Andy, welcome back to the show.
5: Oh, thank you, Patrick. Good to be back. Uh,
0: Before we start talking about uh, your academic uh, creds, did you enter any drafts this year?
5: Yeah, I'm in uh, four leagues this year. Uh, Two are auto new leagues. It's this new format from uh, Fangraphs. Uh, One is with my course at Tufts, and another is a a league that a couple HQ riders and I are part of. Um, It's called the Fangraphs Experts League. I also uh, did... Roto 500 uh, this year. Oh, yeah. I'm, uh, believe it or not, I don't know if you know this, but I'm the defending champ of the New York League. I did not. So I have to join that and keep keep trying to win that one again. And then, of course, I have my home league with all uh, all my buddies.
0: And the uh, Roto 500, there was a fairly significant set of rules changes. Is that complicated matters for your title defense?
5: Yes, because they changed the rules uh, on, on me because I I, I basically – was hard on the waiver wire, so now they got rid of the waiver wire uh, back door that I used. I pushed hard on waiver moves to uh, improve my team last year, and uh, they closed that door on me.
0: <laughs> well, uh, there's where there's a, a new mechanism, there's a new way to circumvent the mechanism. Uh, that's the lesson the financial services industry has taught us.
5: Oh, yeah. I just haven't found it yet in wrote 500, but uh, I'll keep trying.
0: And uh, just recently I noticed uh, on your Twitter feed and uh, I think on your Facebook feed as well, you mentioned that you'd given a talk at TEDx uh, in Boston. Uh, the TED Symposia, of course, are very well known nowadays for being a vehicle for people to, uh, to bring forward interesting intellectual and academic ideas, and you gave this talk. First of all, before we start talking about your content, where were you and who's, who were you speaking with?
5: Well, uh, this was called TEDx Beacon Street. It took place in, uh, in and around Boston um, in November, and there were a huge lineup of wonderful speakers, and I was honored to be part of it. So I gave a talk uh, in the uh, auditorium in a school in Brookline, Massachusetts. Uh, and the talk, you know, I was invited to talk about whatever I wanted to, but I thought I'd talk about the work I did at MIT, and I even threw a little sabermetrics in there too.
0: And were you talking to mostly students or their parents or who was in the audience?
5: Uh, In the audience uh, were the students and the parents, but we were aiming for more, you know, this global audience that you sort of get with the TED Talks that, uh, you know, they they hope that people all over the world will watch them on YouTube.
0: You make a persuasive case in in your talk, which is titled uh, that it's about home runs and you start off by making a really interesting case that a home run is the result not just of squaring up the ball that is transferring the most energy from the batter to the ball through the bat but also an optimal launch angle but I wonder given the tremendous difficulty of hitting a baseball at all which you also refer to is this useful real information for a hitter to, to improve
5: well the part of it is part of it is understanding the biomechanics of your swing but when we look at when we're watching major league players, we're watching people who've been selected for already having great swings. But when you talk about you know going down to the lower levels, you're talking about people who can actually consider their biomechanics and improve their swing. So across the whole spectrum of baseball players, I think there is room for improvement on your swing based on the biomechanics, the physics of the swing and the physics actually of considering the bat ball impact. Some people say that you should think about a certain, you know, through the strike zone, through the hitting zone, you should have a certain sort of tilt to your bat. It shouldn't be just a tabletop, you know, a horizontal swing. There should be a slight tilt to improve the batted ball distance.
0: I was wondering about that because I, I know that a lot of batters are coached, and you hear people talking about on TV when you they do slow motion of a swing, that you want to, the bat to be on a slightly upward path which presumably is meant to improve the chances of getting the ball up into the air, which it has to be to be a home run or to be, usually to be an extra base hit. But it seems to me, just thinking about it, that if your swing is on an upward plane, it makes it more likely you're going to hit the ball below the axial midline of the bat and it makes you more prone to grounders. Could it be the case that the optimal home run swing is a slightly downward plane because it would seem to get under the ball a little more? What is the optimal swing path for home run hitting?
5: It, it turns out to be slightly up, uh, I think, is the answer. That's what the physicist would say. Now, one thing about swinging down, which is a huge advantage, is backspin. You want backspin um, right. because that really improves batted ball distance. So the same way you might do it on – you know, extremely, you could think about it in the extreme by hitting a, a backspin with a tennis racket on a tennis ball, okay, you, that's, that's ideal. But that's really hard to do um, to generate backspin. So it's not you know you're not trying to have a huge uppercut you're not trying to <laughs> do much here but on the, the on, the, on the, the scale of it if you're slightly above horizontal at your swing it actually improves batted ball distance.
0: The other part of it uh, getting back to what I was wondering about, you know, if we have mentioned Bernoulli and Newton to Babe Ruth or Manny Ramirez, they might have thought we were talking about two infielders for the Pirates. But they hit lots of home runs, and they were very effective hitters. And I'm wondering, is it possible to separate how much of home run hitting ability is is just physically innate? You've got to have good eyesight, good hand-eye coordination, maybe the right musculature and the kind of muscles, fast twitch versus slow, those kind of things— I guess what I'm asking is how much is a great home run hitter born and not made?
5: Uh, they are absolutely mostly born. There's no doubt about it. I could train you up, Patrick, and as skilled as you are, I could train you up to be the optimal hitter you could be, and you're probably not going to sniff the major leagues. No. This really is the, uh, this, this combination of your genetics. that uh, it, You listed the, the key things. It's hand-eye coordination it's your strength your fast twitch muscles it's your sort of overall athleticism all those things are real, the the important bits of being a great hitter at the same time you could you could think about the biomechanics and improve and that's what we're talking about we're talking about anybody getting the maximum out of their own batting swing
0: and that that's where great hitters can be made at least in part yes in part
5: i mean obviously uh, if you if you watch baseball at the lower levels, you see guys who are better than others. Now, some of them are well trained, but some of them are just beastly baseball players, and they they're they're great for uh, no fault of their training. They're great because they were made that way.
0: Yeah, I think of a guy like Giancarlo Stanton. He's just Big and, and extremely muscular, or even a guy like Alfonso Soriano, who is not that big, but I remember a description of him as a quivering mass of fast twitch muscles, like all his muscles were fast twitch, which got a, has to help the uh, bat speed and and reacting to the ball quickly and getting your hands through and so on. Sure, sure.
5: All, you know the, you, you, you identified the key things: fast twitch muscle. you know you have to the key factor you really want to hit the ball hard. Is bat speed. You've got to generate bat speed, and that can be, you know, training. But it also can be just your your fast twitch muscle percentage uh, to to help do that.
0: You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick David with Andy Andres of BaseballHQ.com, as well as uh, Tufts University and MIT. And Andy, you admit partway through your talk that the big idea in using physics, math, and biology to teach baseball is really kind of a backdoor plan to use baseball to teach physics, math, and biology. Uh, You're doing this at MIT. The program is called The Science of Baseball. And I wonder, how did that come about? How does it work? And how well is it working?
5: Well, the idea there is that we want to teach these young men uh, more biology, more physics, and more mathematics. But we use it through their just intrinsic interest in baseball. So we kind of make it seem like, oh, it's sort of, we call it science of baseball, we'll be playing baseball. But fundamentally, the goal of this whole program is to reinvigorate young men and their interest in scholarship, their interest in, in performing well in school. And so we try to make it fun. We try to make the physics and the biology and the mathematics applicable to stuff they really care about, the stuff they care about uh, being, being baseball.
0: And is it applied in the sense that that there's coaches on the field who say you need to do this this way to improve your performance and there's a, a physics or there's a bio-bio bioskeletal impetus to, to learn to do this this way?
5: Exactly. Uh, we, one of the vignettes that I tell is that uh, I've done lots of coaching in lots of different places for different ages and only on the MIT, you know, science of baseball fields where we play, do I really get away with saying, remember moment of inertia. That's why we choose that bet. That's why we keep our hands in. And it actually, people on the field get it um, because that's what we're teaching them. We're teaching them those kinds of uh, pieces to their swing. So, uh, you know, as a coach at MIT, I've yelled, Moment of inertia, moment of inertia, and my players get it. If I did that on a normal baseball field, I think uh, people would look at me like uh, I was talking something very strange, something very different.
0: It would make a heck of a heck of a cheerleading cheer
5: moment of inertia i like that
0: (laughs) uh, uh, mesopotamia and persia remember your moment of inertia very good team (laughs) that's good patrick you you have to expect that that would be an mit team and yes perhaps not georgia university of georgia uh which is i don't mean to upset anybody who went to the university of georgia i'm sure it's a fine school and probably (laughs) (laughs) they all learned about math and that's great Uh, Um,
5: you could probably do it at georgia tech because there are a bunch of engineers there so that's right
0: and i knew a guy from georgia tech and he was a very brilliant guy uh, you know uh, you're you're mentioning your vignette about uh, using these principles or these concepts to teach sports performance reminds me uh, a year or so ago i was walking by the tennis court near my neighborhood and there was a dad out there and his son and the son was about eight years old and they were practicing with lacrosse sticks which is very big in the part of canada where i live uh, they play indoor lacrosse like on a hockey rink with no ice and he was teaching the boy that when you want to when you want to shoot the ball hard, you have to bring your hands close together, and when you want to retain control, you want your your bottom hand up near the the uh, the net of the lacrosse stick and he and he was explaining it by using the principles of leverage he said you know your the second hand is the fulcrum of a lever you know and, and the kid got it Good. you know the kid understood right away, so you can use these uh, these techniques and you conclude your presentation by arguing that this technique is not restricted to baseball you can use any sport to motivate kids to learn about math physics biology statistics all these kind of things
5: yeah i think that that is a universal truth is that to think about uh, children and their desire to learn more maybe we need to tap more into their intrinsic interest in sport or something maybe it's ballet or maybe it's dancing or maybe it's some other thing but Whatever the intrinsic interest is, maybe we can sort of, you know, take that as the foundation and say, well, let's learn the biology of that and the physics of that and everything else associated with that. And then we might create a set of young scholars who really get excited about learning and keep pushing this whole idea of achievement and, you know, doing well in school.
0: And uh, perhaps becoming better baseball players at the same time, which is a win-win for them as well.
5: Exactly. Exactly.
0: Most importantly for our Baseball HQ Radio audience, can you foresee any applications of these kind of, uh, especially the biomechanical theories, for fantasy baseball purposes, for player projection purposes? Does it happen now, or is it ever going to happen in some way?
5: The only thing I would say is that maybe there's a way to eventually translate real biomechanics of somebody into real injury prediction and real injury sort of uh, maintenance and if that's the case if that can really be built into the fantasy projections then sure i mean we we do use dl days and injuries already in many projection systems like uh, certainly at hq it, it it's part of it but um you know if you can really Bridge the gap a bit more between biomechanics and injuries with some more uh, reliability. Yeah, sure. I think it could be part of projection systems.
0: And what about if we get more access to um, sort of real time or slow motion, ultra slow motion views of batter bat trajectory through the swing plane? Is that going to reveal a, a nascent or potential home run hitter who's maybe not quite there yet, maybe not quite big enough yet, but he's got the the, the core skill of power hitting his bat speed and bat angle if you want home runs and extra base hits? Are we within sight of being able to look at a guy at AA and say, man, this guy's got exactly the swing plane and sw- bat speed that he needs to accomplish this?
5: I, yeah, that's another thing you could do if you could get the high-speed video. The player development in major league in major league baseball uh, major league teams they look at stuff like this already they're doing a little bit of biomechanics but bottom line you know they're trying to get people to hit better and throw better and that's what player development is all about so they're trying this already and some of them might be using more advanced video or other analysis um I guess in a way, if that's what scouts might want to look at, too, uh, advanced scouting might involve high-speed video and real analysis of swings. But you're right. You've identified the key thing, uh, which is the ability to generate bat speed, the ability to keep consistent contact. I mean, I'm sure there are people out there who can generate massive bat speed, but without the hand-eye piece, the hand-eye coordination. Right, right the ability to keep that all focused and have that part of your own muscular muscle memory. Uh, They're not going to be good hitters, but you need this combination of things. Guys can square up the ball, guys have big bat speed, and that's what player development people are trying to do, trying to generate those kinds of ideas in their hitters as they advance through the system to get to the majors.
0: And you could almost see a situation where, the ability to generate bat speed is innate. That is, you might have some kind of miles per hour of the bat through the hitting zone type of stat that starts getting compiled. and But the ability to change the bat plane is a coachable skill. And so you can see a time in the future, or maybe already, I mean, there, may, there are probably certain scouts who can watch a guy hit and don't need a slow motion replay. They say, that guy's got a really good swing, a really good swing plane. And or or he's got tremendous bat speed, but his but his bat trajectory is wrong. But that's a coachable thing. Whereas the bat speed itself might not be so coachable; it might be more innate.
5: No, that, I think that's probably right. But you, but with strength training, you can improve your bat speed. I mean, that's what okay is also clear with the increase in weightlifting in the game, the increase in steroid use in the game, and things that help your strength will also improve your bat speed. So, uh, yeah. I think talented scouts see these sort of things, and they may not use the words of the engineers or physicists, but they see the same stuff that we're talking about.
0: It's all going to be very interesting. Do you ever worry about a day at some point in the future where we have such great analytical tools at our disposal? It's the argument already being made by traditionalists against current Saber metrics, but we're now getting kind of one layer or two layers deeper into the structure of the game that it's somehow taking the fun out of it? No,
5: I disagree. I don't think there's any fun loss uh, at all in, in being an analyst. Uh, I like, I'm in. I'm in the camp of the more we analyze, the more we learn, the better the whole enterprise is. So that's where I sit.
0: And I think that's where all of us sit too. And in the meantime, just because a guy has a great swing, great hand-eye coordination, and tremendous bat speed, he's still going to go out a third of the time, right? I mean, there's, <laughs> exactly. and it's essentially sort of random.
5: Yes. Uh, well, it's sort of random, except that you and I never made it, so it's not that random. These these people who do this are much better than you and I. I un-
0: yeah, I understand that. I'm saying once they're there, that you know, if you got a whole bunch of 300 hitters, you still can't say he went out the last two times, therefore he's guaranteed to hit this oh, time.
5: yes, that that's the yes the randomness the the, the, the any the any new event piece is uh, interesting too. Every new event so, as a new is a new is a new attempt at the batter hitting the ball harder or the pitcher getting the batter out that's what makes the game fascinating
0: that whole uh, idea about uh, probabilities and outcomes i think that's a really interesting piece for fantasy players to understand uh we've we've had great debates about whether there's such a thing as a hot streak whether there's such a thing as a clutch hitter all of these kind of things have gone on and, and maybe uh there's an opportunity to do some learning there as well
5: well uh anybody who's on their uh trajectory of learning more uh i support it uh you know i think that's very cool so uh let's all learn a lot more about everything hot streaks clutch etc
0: baseball hq radio patrick Davitt with andy andres and uh, andy i always ask our expert featured guest to give us some picks and pans for the show and uh now that the season has started i'm wondering if you're have identified any players that you're keeping an eye on who might not be big names right now but might contribute later in the season uh, how about an American league hitter you have your eye on as a possible later ad
5: later I'd later add uh, very soon add I'd, I'd get look at Mike Zanino. he has this track record of being a fabulous power hitter every level everybody talks about his ability to be uh, a major league catcher and run a bullpen I mean run run the pitching staff just fine. He started off real hot. He's got four home runs in the first week or so in the minor leagues. I think he's going to pressure himself into that lineup fairly soon.
0: Do you have any concerns over the truism that uh, catchers take longer to really come to full offensive fruition because of the defensive demands?
5: Not in this case because he's catching the whole time. Uh, He's not been DHing in the minor leagues. In spring training he was catching – Spring training, he hit a bunch of home runs. He's already started hitting a bunch of home runs in the very short time this year, and I think he, he's just demonstrating the skill. He's a legit hitter who is a great catcher, and he's done this all levels. So, get Zunino and get Zunino quickly would be, would be my advice.
0: And it's not like he's blocked by uh, Johnny Bench or anything like that with Jesus Montero back of the plate up there. Uh... Exactly. How about a National League hitter?
5: I don't know. Will Venable has started hot, and he's probably, you know, people probably looked at him and said, oh, maybe a platoon guy, maybe a guy who's never going to show much. But there's not a whole lot going on in the San Diego outfield. Excuse me. And he just, uh, you know, I think he just hit a home run off a lefty, so the splits might not be a problem. I like Will Venable, and I triple like him because he's, uh, he's a Princeton guy, so he's a smart guy. We, we always support the smart guys in uh, Major League Baseball.
0: And there are more of them than people realize, I think. How about an American League pitcher?
5: Guys pitched uh, well so far in the minors who might force his way into the rotation real soon is Chris Archer. Had a good stint last year with the Rays. I think uh, there's some potentially dicey uh, front, uh, front of the uh, rotation guys at Tampa. So I think uh, he might be up soon.
0: And of course, his stock must have risen with the news that Jeff Neiman's going to be out for the year. And uh, now the guy in front of him is Roberto Hernandez, who used to be Fausto Carmona, who was never that great. I agree.
5: So that's why Archer might force his way. And he's, I think he's had uh, more than a strikeout per inning in his two minor league stints and uh, hardly walked anybody's 6-1, to one, I think, ratio, command ratio. So uh uh think about Archer sooner rather than later for uh for picking up in him in, in your
0: leagues and how about a national league pitcher
5: well i'm gonna i'm gonna suggest uh Rosenthal for the cardinals i mean if he ends up as a starter, which is probably less likely than him ending up as a closer, either way, his value is gonna increase i think as this year goes on. I don't see his role continuing as a middle relief guy and even if it does if your league has holds this guy's going to be a fabulous addition uh, i don't know how widely he's been taken but given the injuries and the shakiness of their bullpen he has a chance to establish himself like all these guys establish themselves year to year as a real closer he's certainly got the he's got the the skill set to be a closer he's got the the commit the uh the pitches and the uh, to really be fabulous, fabulous in the role, he just doesn't have the opportunity yet.
0: Can you tell our listeners, where, first, where can they see your TEDx talk?
5: Well, if you Google uh, Andres, A-N-D-R-E-S, and then TEDx, and uh, I think if you do Andres, TEDx, and baseball, Google will put you right at uh, my uh, the YouTube for my talk.
0: Are there any other resources you can recommend? I'm thinking especially for teachers or for people interested in in this work that you're doing, combining baseball and science education.
5: Yes. Well, SABER, the Society for American Baseball Research, has just formed an educational resources committee that I'm the chairman of. So we're going to be putting together shortly a whole website compendium of people's courses that they put together and ideas that they're using and labs that they're running using baseball to teach various things not just science but also humanities and history and sociology so uh, using baseball to educate various topics uh, is gaining traction and you'll be with through the Sabre website and through other research on your own you'll be able to find a lot about it
0: all right Andy it sounds great it's going to be super interesting I, I just can't wait for the next few years to see what we come up with as researchers and what you guys at, at higher levels of research come up with, both, both in terms of the baseball research itself, but especially the ability to engage kids in the game and in the learning. Thanks.
5: Well, I agree, Patrick. It should be fun. And we'll
0: catch up with you again during the year, I hope.
5: I hope so too, Patrick. I always enjoy, uh, enjoy being part of Baseball HQ Radio.
0: Andy Andres is a veteran at BaseballHQ.com. He's a data caster and stringer for MLBAM. Didn't even talk about that. Digitally scoring games at Fenway Park for Game Day app, uh, ESPN's Gamecast, and so on. And most importantly, Andy's a an university professor. He teaches baseball analysis and sabermetrics at Tufts biology and physics at boston university and as we heard during the summer a course in science and mathematics and coaching baseball in the mit science of baseball program our regular commentaries are next this is baseball hq radio down in the cincinnati locker room with johnny bench johnny congratulations on that terrific performance oh
5: (laughs) it's been so long and i Gosh, I can't. I can't tell you. It's just. It's been a rough year, and I just tickle, tickle to death. I was, Two home runs, Johnny. Which one did you hammer the hardest?
1: The first one or the, the, second, or the second one? I really second. hit hard. I, just, you know, I was looking to drive the last guy and just hit the ball hard somewhere. And I, I can't imagine. I, I really,
5: really, in all my years, this is the greatest thrill I've probably ever had. You were voted the most
0: valuable player, and John, you really deserved it. Oh. I'll tell you. Thank you. I,
5: Well, you know, when you play with these guys and they've done the job all year, and then you're able to do something just to, you know, make up for everything you haven't done all year. It's just, it's just you know, a great inspiration for me and a
0: great
1: food. John, so not only
0: are you a great athlete, but let me say that you set such a marvelous example for everyone who follows the game of baseball. As someone in the media who's had to deal with all kinds of athletes, there's no one finer than Johnny Bench. I, I,
5: thank you.
0: All right, Johnny, congratulations. And right now our post-game show will continue in one minute. I guess fawning interviews aren't exactly a modern day phenomenon. Welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular weekly commentaries. We have BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler on deck with his master notes and leading off the minor league minute. BaseballHQ.com minor league expert Rob Gordon
2: telling us about Seattle catcher prospect Mike Zunino. The Seattle Mariners' Mike Zunino has quickly become one of the best catching prospects in baseball. When the Mariners drafted Zanino with the third overall pick in the 2012 draft and signed him to a $4 million bonus, scouts and talent evaluators were enthusiastic but not effusive in their praise of the deal. Most saw him as a solid all-around backstop. He was a good but not great defender, had a good bat but wasn't going to hit for a ton of power or be a career 300 hitter. It didn't take long for the Mariners and others to realize that Zanino was even better than advertised. All he did in his pro debut was hit 360 with a 447 on on-base percentage and an impressive 689 slugging percentage. He had 14 doubles, 13 home runs, and 23 walks against 33 strikeouts and 161 at-bats. Zunino moves well behind the plate and continues to improve his blocking and receiving skills. While Jesus Montero is currently blocking Zunino in Seattle, that should not be seen as a big impediment as Zunino is the better defender. When the Mariners decide that Zunino is ready for the majors, they will likely shift Montero to DH. That call-up could be even sooner than anticipated, and Zunino is off to a quick start for AAA Tacoma, going 10-for-26 with three doubles and four home runs in his first six games. Mike Zunino now profiles as a middle-of-the-order run producer and an above-average defender, and is a must-own in all keeper formats. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon.
0: You've heard me say it before, another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with our comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, Rob and Jeremy Deloney, Colby Garrape and Chris Maloney have reports and updates on top prospects, organization moves, daily call-up reports and everything else you need to keep tabs on rising stars. Baseball HQ's call-up reports this week have looked at Texas right-handers Nick Teppish and Justin Grimm, as well as Seattle Southpaw Bobby LaFramboise and several others. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's Master Notes with BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler talking this week about excruciating patience.
4: This is the toughest time of the season to be a fantasy leaguer. The general advice is to exercise excruciating patience, which is darn near impossible when you see your frontline line pitchers scuffling with double-digit ERAs. In this week's USA Today chat, I wrote, There is nearly nothing that has occurred in the past 10 days that would change any preseason expectations. That goes for John Buck and Justin Upton. That goes for Cole Hamels and Edwin Encarnacion. There are a few isolated cases where we've had an inkling for a while that something might be different, so what we're seeing now could be real. But the Roy Hallidays and Mike Napolis are the exception rather than the rule. Giancarlo Stanton may be an exception as well. While he's arguably the strongest power hitter in the majors, his pre draft rankings were slightly lower than they should have been due to the fear that his surrounding cast could suppress his numbers. Would pitchers give him anything to hit with Placido Polanco and Greg Dobbs behind him in the order? So far, that seems to be a valid concern, though of course it's early. And Stanton did not hit his first home run until the end of April last year, so there's that. Stat heads are not big believers in lineup protection, but in severe cases like this, you have to take at least a little notice. Still, for the questions about whether the early surgers and strugglers are for real, the general rule of thumb is this. If you had asked the same question on opening day, what would your answer have been? Then go with that. I always go back to CC Sabathia's start in 2008. He was 0-3 with a 13.50 ERA after four starts, then went 17-7 with a 188 ERA the rest of the way. Now, bullpens, they're another story. Less than two weeks into the season and four closers have already lost their jobs, at least temporarily. Yes, Jason Mott got hurt, but that pen is no easier to call than any other. Add in Milwaukee, Detroit, and the Chicago Cubs, and one would think there are a bunch of new, readily available safe sources in fantasy free agent pools. Not so fast. Who covers for Mott in St. Louis? Boggs? Rosenthal? Mujica? Salas? Maybe we can commit to Fujikawa in Wrigley because there are no other viable options. But will the soft, skilled Jim Henderson really take over for John Axford in Milwaukee? If pressed, a strong case could be made for Axford reclaiming the role at some point. And it's anyone's guess in Detroit. The most realistic expectation might actually be Jose Valverde. My rule of thumb here is just to stay away from those pens that are too tough to call. Speculate on the best-skilled arms if you have room to stash them away and can easily churn them. Otherwise, just focus on those teams with better options. Finally, and perhaps the biggest news of the week, Mike Trout stole his first base of the season after eight games. Uh, I'm not trying to be flip. Okay, maybe a little bit. But it's interesting to note one fact. Trout recorded either a home run or a stolen base every single week last year, and he failed to post at least one of both in a single week only twice. He went through the first week of 2013 with nothing, his counting stats amounting to four runs and one RBI. Now, of course, it's a small sample size. Maybe we should be concerned about the 10 strikeouts and 36 at-bats. Maybe not but you can't tell me that Trout owners aren't hanging on his every box score right now. The reason I spent so much time trying to discount Trout's 2012 performance was that it was otherworldly. With numbers that high, it's not about regression, it's about gravity. Frankly, for me, he was about the easiest player to project. You might consider him low-hanging fish, I suppose. Of course, I'm not going to gloat after eight games, but Trout's early numbers are just a reminder that every season begins as a blank slate. We'll see what the fates have in store for the next 25 weeks. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ron Chandler.
0: Ron Chandler's Fanalytics column appears every Friday on BaseballHQ.com. This week, Ron writes about his 10-day predictions, an interesting topic following on with this week's Master Notes. Ron also has a weekly chat every Wednesday morning at 11 o'clock Eastern at usatoday.com and he discusses his columns and other topics in the subscriber forums at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Ron's master notes delivered to your inbox every Friday with the free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, Ron also has his master notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for the week of April the 12th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 13 of the 2013 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guests today, starting with Andy Andres, the baseball professor. Always fun talking with Andy. I also want to thank our regular guests from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our League Watch news analysts were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our minor league analyst was Rob Gordon. And our Master Notes commentator, BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler. Be sure to check out BaseballHQ.com now and in the coming days for these features. Rick Wilton, Dr. HQ, has his Anatomy 101 on shoulder capsule injuries. Very important to know those to manage your pitching staff. Glenn Lowy has his latest installment of chasing the NFBC. Ray Murphy's Speculator column back tests some starting pitcher meltdowns. Plus, we have all our regular features on playing time, buyer's guides, division outlooks, pitcher matchups, and much more. I'm Patrick Davin. I have a research article about platoon advantages for hitters on the site now, and I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can check out Baseball HQ on Facebook, and on our Twitter feed, at BaseballHQ. My own Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt. If you want to sign up and follow me, I'd love to have you. And remember to please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio, and take a second to go to iTunes and rate our show. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next week with Fantasy Baseball's Zen Master, Lore Michaels, on another edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long.